All right, folks. So I am so super excited to be with my, my dear friend, Dylan Hendricks here. And, and Dylan, first off, I want to say hello and let you introduce yourself. And the other thing is I, I told a number of people how super excited I am to be talking to a futurist today. And everybody, including my wonderful wife, said, what is a futurist? So introduce yourself. And maybe give us a little background about what a futurist is and does. Great. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, very nice to be with you as well. It's been too long since we've been able to have regular conversations. And hello, to I'm sure there's a lot of people I know who are in the audience. So hello, everybody I know. Uh, I miss you. Um, so I am, yeah, so I, I, I tend to not call myself a futurist just because of the kind of the, the sort of magician kind of aura that that has. Um, although I do accept that other people calling me that, I get hired out as a futurist quite a bit. So I, I work for a, a nonprofit research organization called the Institute for the Future. Um, that's based out of California, even though my wife and her family and I live in Austin, Texas. Um, and we've been around for about 50 years and actually sort of spun out of a, a research organization called RAND in the late 1960s that had a lot of the early pioneers of the, of the early internet technologies in it and a lot of folks working under kind of government contracts. But they kind of foresaw that the internet was going to be this really disruptive thing back in the 60s. Wow. And so they, but they couldn't talk about their work publicly. So they spun out the Institute for the Future as a nonprofit with the public mission of helping organizations and the public to think more strategically about the long-term future. So that was the mission was to sort of get people's, what we call sometimes temporal bandwidth, their ability to think about the consequences of their actions, to extend that out further. And to, within that, to not try to predict the future. I mean, there's, there was eras, I think in the 60s, maybe they were trying to predict it. But today, we, we recognize that nobody can predict the future, um, just so that everybody who's kind of got their arms crossed right away kind of knows that that's not a, there's no crystal ball. Um, but what we do is we have these methodologies we've been developing for decades uh, to have sort of more st structured, useful conversations about what's possible in the future. And so we do a lot of work of, of, that's very multidisciplinary. We have researchers walk, working in different uh, labs, all trying to look at what we call signals of change, of sort of things that are happening on the fringes that are maybe not on people's radar yet, um, and, and try to collect those and, and think about where we see a lot of those kinds of signals of something changing that has the potential to scale or to move somewhere else, that that sort of becomes something really interesting to look at as a, a very potent future possibility. Right. So we, we look at these kind of research inputs and we put together different scenarios. And the goal of that, I think, for uh, the people we work with, which is, you know, a massive range of every company you've ever heard of and over the last 50 years and governments and everybody. Um, but the goal is to give them a sense of possibilities that are they're just not thinking about so that they think about it before it happens. Right. Um, but also really to empower people with agency about our future. We really believe that we are not just on rails towards some set future but that we all make, we, we all sort of, you know, contribute to what the future will be with every decision that we make today. An idea that's very compatible with religion, I think of it as very sort of, you know, thinking about the consequences of your actions in terms of where you're gonna end up is kind of at the heart of a lot of religion. Um, but we try to, we do it in this way that um, gives organizations permission to think longer term about um, where, where do we want to end up? What kind of future do we want to live in? And what would we need to do today in order to end up there, oh, right? And cool. so try, really trying to give people language and tools to grapple with the future um, in, in terms of, of making the futures that we want and, and anticipating you know, these, these kinds of unexpected things that, that we might be able to expect a little sooner than, than they happen to us. Oh, that's really well said. So, yeah, as, as you were thinking about that, I thought you know, one of the challenges, right, like signal-to-noise ratio can be really hard. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. And our fears, you know, the signal can be here, but if my fears are up here, it makes it really hard to kind of look at those signals. And then of course that makes it even harder to, to move towards a possibility. Like, or feared up, that's not going to happen. So, uh, so a question I have for you, Dylan, is like, like, it, as you see it, like within the church world, you know, and again, we're not a government, we're not a business, we're kind of got this spiritual mission here, and yeah, in the church world, what are some of the signals you think that we need to be really aware of for those of us who are who are in leadership positions with churches, who are trying to like navigate it forward as as best we can to this sense of possibilities? Like, what are some of the signals you think? Hey, you know what? These are like so like three of them I'd really pay attention to. Yeah. So I think, I think in general, um, and I might change the order of this as I'm speaking, but so one, one big trend we're seeing that I just think when I think about, okay, what is my first sort of mental assumption about what's happening right now and where, where we're going to end up on the other side of COVID, right? Just cause that's on top of everybody's mind is there's a lot of kind of conjecture out there that sort of is maybe a turning point in different ways and different things everything that I'm seeing and that we're talking about at the Institute suggests to me that the first way to think about it is as an acceleration of things that were already happening. Yeah. Right. And so there was a lot of trends, right. That we were feeling that people thought like, whether it's churches in terms of, do we need an online component? Do we change different aspects? You know, I mean, we're seeing it across everything like retail, the way schools are set up, remote working, all these kinds of things. But I think anything that you kind of saw coming where there's a tipping point somewhere in the future, but every, every month, every quarter, we can kind of, oh, it's not yet. We're not going to make that change yet. I think what we're, we might expect to see through this pandemic uh, kind of period, like which I'm beginning to think of as kind of an era, you know, almost, um, is that a lot of those trends that maybe were going to happen in five to seven years are maybe going to just happen a lot sooner, yeah. right? And so we should, I think we should expect to see a lot of businesses that were operating on the margins kind of folding over. Um, and a lot of practices that were operating on the margins potentially sort of losing their viability now or gaining their viability now, depending on which which kind of momentum they were having. So I think when I think about churches in terms of that, I think it's it's actually a little bit different with churches, you know, to be honest, because one of the other aspects of that that sort of is a consequence of that 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 trend is that I think what we're going to experience in this next little period is that there are so many different perspectives just on what the virus is doing, right? If you, even if you're just trying to be a responsible, sort of you're, you're, you're fact-checking your news, you're trying to do all those things that we're all trying to do, that, that very smart, reasonable people have very different perspectives on yeah. what this is, how long it's going to take. The models are constantly fluctuating. Um, and a lot of jobs are going to change, like millions of people are going to lose their jobs or have their jobs change in their nature. And I think what it's going to kind of force from us is a, a reevaluation of a lot of like, okay, what do we have left? What, what, do, what, what do I belong to? What, what's important to me? And a lot of that's gonna be in the meaning making, you know? So if people have jobs where they associate themselves with like, well, I do this, my school, my kids go here and I go from nine to five to this job. And a lot of their identity and their meaning making is tied up in that, right? And when that's all thrown into flux, I think people, the first thing people need in order to not go crazy is they need to ground themselves into where they're going to find meaning. And how, what's the meaning that doesn't change uh, amidst everything that is changing, right? And so I think when, you know, the, when, when, the, when the sort of the, the natural world and the institutions that we operate in, when they're all kind of at status quo, it can be easy to just assume that that's like what we are and how life is. And I think that that is going to, to sort of, as that's sort of swept, like the, the rug kind of pulled out from a lot of those assumptions, 
that there is a huge opportunity, I think, for religious organizations to um, be a place where people go like, okay, what, what was life about again? Why am I here? What am I doing? Yeah. Those things that never change, which is really like the, the conditions that religion was born out of originally, right? Were these very kind of volatile kind of conditions where um, people had no grounding stories that couldn't be upended. Um, I, I think to the degree that we should expect a little bit more volatility, not just for this next two months, but for, you know, for, for the foreseeable future, let's say, right? We, we need to kind of pace ourselves for that, um, that there's a, a sort of a positive in there for churches of that people are going to be asking for the thing that churches have traditionally provided. And, and it'll just be really important that churches are looking to provide it in the ways that people are asking. Yeah, think, yeah. Right? That it won't just be, okay, can I have a, a, a traditional church service? Um, right? I mean, for some folks, it will be that if they grew up with that tradition, particularly, maybe they'll want to ground back to that. But I think that there's an opportunity in this 21st century world for, for people to try to help people with that, that grounding, like even the kind of the, the psychological aspects of religion, yeah. right? That help you to not feel like that you have no control, that you don't know what's left or right, that, that you remember like, oh, okay, yeah, remember the lilies in the field, remember the birds, remember that God is there and he loves me. I, I, those are things that I am, and, you know, and, and you'd be surprised at how many, um, sort of futurists, especially where I work, are kind of have a, a spiritual background. Um, that there's quite a few of us. Um, but that's where my grounding always is and, and where I think is, is more important than ever is to have stories that do, will not change, uh, right. regardless of everything else that does. Right? That's so good. And I, and I love that idea, right? You, you know, the, the, the ends of spirituality remain the same. The means are where we have to be flexible. You yeah. Know, because again, it's, it's like, uh, you know, I was mentioning to you earlier in our pre-call, you know, I, I was uh, you know, last week, just between a couple of services, I was talking to people from England and Ireland and Bali and Czech Republic and England, you know, from all over. And that's, that's such a different world. And, and you know, as you were saying that too, I, I love the idea, right? That, that, that when we get lost, we try to find true north. And, and Dylan, this is me being, because I, I know maybe three things that you don't, you know, because you're much smarter than I am. And, and this is one of the three. So I'm using one of my kits right now, which is, which is, I love the word disaster. And, and do you know what the word disaster means? I mean, the probably root not. Is, the, root is, the root is, it's when we lose track of our stars. Uh-huh. Oh, I did not know that. That's which cool. I love the idea, right? Like when yeah. we lose track of that true north, which this time certainly can feel like in a lot of ways, it feels yeah. like a disaster. And so people want to go back and to find those things they can navigate by but it's learning to navigate a new terrain. It's, it's not, um, it's not, it doesn't give us all the answers per se. It's, it's a navigation tool. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and just a thought, cause you asked me for three before. And so a yeah. third one, you know, I'm, and I, and I know that there's, there's a, a version of, of this that I could give that would really focus on the virtual attendance. But I, I think that's actually something that everybody's kind of internalized the, the changing context around, right. right. That there's, sort of okay so people are doing things more remotely certainly right now everything in the world is happening on zoom but another trend that i would really pay attention to out of this that i do think is also more of an opportunity than a crisis uh, or a disaster for uh, churches is i have a strong sort of feeling based off of, again signals things we're tracking that that schooling is going to be one of those things that's been like probably you know i think it's, especially you think about elementary education i think that's probably one of the most sort of small c conservative institutions that we have 
where it's like more or less exactly the same as it was in the 1800s, right? right? right. And, right. and we don't really want to touch it because it's kind of bedrock and it's sort of sacred. It's our kids and it's childcare. It's all these things, even though we all recognize that there are aspects of it that are, um, that, that, that could use with a refresh, right? And, and we don't even necessarily reassess those things very often. But I think this is, is going to force a real reassessment of those things. And I just know, even know for ourselves, you know, I mean, right now, like yesterday, my wife and I, Hallie, so our kids have been homeschooling, obviously, and like everybody else, our kids have, our, the teachers have been doing a valiant, like heroic job of trying to bring remote learning to the kids. But just the energy of, of my, you know, I go downstairs and my six-year-old's on an iPad on Zoom with 30 other kids. Like that's not the energy that we had kind of associated with what school is the benefit of, <laughs> especially in kindergarten, right? Um, so like a lot of parents, we've kind of pulled back and we've on that and been like, thank you. But I think we'll, we'll, we'll take it. We can handle the cur kindergarten curriculum. And we've been homeschooling our kids. And we, we, my wife and I were both working remotely before this. So I think we, we had a little bit of a, a head start on acclimatizing to that. The homeschool lift is really heavy, but it has made us, like every parent right now, sort of think more about what education is for mm -hmm. our school and our kids and what's important to us about it. And I think, I, I don't anticipate that in a lot of places in this country, school in the fall is necessarily going to just snap back to normal. Mm -hmm. Like in California and New York, they're already talking about maybe rotating kids out, about th these different things. And, and I think that there's going to be a lot, a huge kind of reassessment across our culture of it because everybody's thinking through these same problems at once of, I think more people being interested in kind of new ways of thinking about education for their kids. Yeah. And I, I know that that's something that had been declining um, in the church, even though it was like a huge part of its DNA. Um, but I think that there, we might see a version of a resurgence of that where maybe there's more t parents that want to homeschool and then have collectives of homeschooling or, have hybrid models where they're doing some things in the classroom. I, I just anticipate that those things were available technologically for a while. We just hadn't thought about it. We'd commodified this kind of form of childcare yeah. and public education. This is a huge opportunity to reassess that everybody's being confronted with. And so I think the other angle that I would look at for the church is that for people thinking about the values that they're reassessing in themselves, the values they want for their kids, the kind of schooling that is maybe available to them, aspects of homeschooling they might like, that there's a real opportunity for the church to be involved in different versions of that, whether it's kind of providing materials to folks that are doing more hybrid homeschooling, whether it's thinking about hybrid models that they could participate in. I, I just anticipate that education might be one of the things that we, we kind of look back on this as an inflection point in behavior. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's interesting, just even with our little kids live program on Sunday, uh, you know, I guess about three or four weeks ago, we started live streaming just the kids live as well as kind of the adult service. And it was interesting, I was looking at the numbers from last week, we got a lot of folks, you know, tuning in on that, which was just interesting because it's not a model that we were thinking of. And, and like you said, you know, I loved what you said, you know, this is like a five to 10 year accelerator. We're, over the past few months, we've accelerated five to 10 years worth of time, which, which is fascinating. And as, as you're going through this, you know, and, and, and if, if you're a, you know, like there'll be some church leaders from all different kinds of denominations, actually, who will, who will eventually watch this. And, and as we're trying to kind of figure out those possibilities, figure out what those signals are to, to help to lead our people forward as God gives us to see it. Like, what would you, what would you coach someone like myself to say, hey, you know, these are the questions to really start thinking about asking at a, at a, at a time like this that could well be an inflection point. 
Yeah, I mean, and some of them might be obvious. So I wouldn't presume that any of these aren't questions that a lot of people may be already asking. But I think the things that occur to me are like, what do my people need? That's that that to really like re-examine the priors on that, right? Just okay. to, to sort of like really um, allow yourself to assume that a lot of things have maybe changed for people in ways that require not just sort of, okay, here's how we deliver the old thing in a new way, which is probably, I think for a lot of us sort of that, that's the kind of survivalist instinct is like, okay, I, I owe these things and it's really stressful right now. The kids are running around. We're trying to do it on zoom. And so I'm going to deliver these same things and I'm going to do it this new way. I think I would encourage people to give themselves as much permission as they can for one to sort of that we all need to pace ourselves that this is not a sprint. It's a marathon in terms of this adaptation that we, we, we need to keep our own sanity through this in order to be of use to anybody else. So prioritize that, but also to, um, to, to, to allow this to be a moment for a rethink of what is it that people are going to need now and what are the new ways that we can provide that? And, and so one of the, the new ways to provide that, I think is um, that there are some literacies that everybody's kind of now suddenly getting a crash course in across the country that were very unevenly distributed before. Yeah. Um, and it, it, I wouldn't assume that like church is going to go entirely remote. I think it's much more nuanced and complex than that. But I do think that like everybody's remote literacy has gone way up in terms of being yes. on what we're doing right now. Yeah. Right. And so I've been working remotely for five years and I was like a weirdo for most of that period. Um, even in my own organization, we've been slowly doing more of it. Um, but most of the time I was kind of the one person doing it and, and sort of trying to hide that fact, you know, and, um, pretend I'm in an office or something like that, just so that I didn't have to make other people uncomfortable with it. A lot of our clients that we work with, the big organizations, just didn't want to think about it. Like they just wouldn't consider it. And now I think you're, you are seeing, right, that everybody's had to do it. A lot of people are finding they hate it. A lot of people are finding like, this is doable. We can do this. Work is still happening. And so you're going to see this kind of mishmash coming out of it where I think the things that really need to be in person are going to get amplified because that's maybe going to take a little more work to do, yeah. right? Um, but the things that can be done remotely in, around those things um, are, are going to be much more accessible for people. So I, I would encourage people to think of these not as sort of binary shifts, but as, as like different tools in the toolbox, some of which become more important. So if you ever want to just like, oh yeah, so as a follow-up to church, we're going to do like in-person groups. And maybe if you're you know, not in a geographically sort of defined area where you can just meet in your house, that the ability to get people onto a Zoom call to do groups is now something you can assume people can figure out, right? It's, it's, um, just, it's just too, sorry for interrupting, but it's just too funny if you say, because that's what we're starting this weekend, is this okay. week we're starting Zoom groups right after church that are being hosted, like this is crazy, not crazy for you, totally crazy for an old guy like me. They're being hosted by two couples out of Michigan. Yeah, like, that's great. Crazy, you know, and they're gonna host this little like coffee and donuts thing after church on on Sunday yeah yeah and I think with those so you know we've also had to shift our so one of the things I do at the Institute is I produce our big annual event and I've done that for the last eight years and we had a plan all in place this beautiful sort of you know place we were going to go to this year obviously that's all changed so we're going to go virtual and so we're doing a lot of research right now on how do you do a, a, a virtual event well right and how do you recreate some of those things that are um, right that, that are a part of the physical piece. And I think one of the things that you can really do to, so the, the two things I would coach on remote things 
are that facilitation becomes a lot more important. The, the role of the facilitator to sort of guide the conversation, to not let it, because people are also in their own environments, right? You're, you're fighting the fact that everybody's in a different physical space, which affects their mental space. So I think part of it is facilitating things um, tightly so that people kind of understand what the, you know, the topics we're going to go through or how the responses are going to come out or what the goal is. I think thinking really intentionally about facilitation um, is, is really key. Another one that we're really looking into that I think churches are like prime candidates for, better candidates than we are, is the opportunity to bring physical objects into, like have, have everybody who's participating have some shared physical object that can become part of a, a ritual that they're doing together virtually. Like finding ways to sort of um, allow people to both be in their physical environment wherever they are. But if there's just something they can do, something where, you know, and I don't know if it's, I don't know which of the direct rituals from the church you could carry over without sort of communion would be communion would be a prime example. Well, exactly. So to the degree that that's something comfortable, the idea that if you, okay, here we've sent you, uh, like you have a bottle of, of, you know, this is just me riffing right now, but I don't know what the theological implications are. But if you could do communion where people have their own bread and their wine at home, but they're doing it together virtually, that could be amazing for people, right? I, I think it really could help people feel connected to each other by all doing something, you know, like you can even imagine like cheersing, right, over the, yeah. the Zoom. There's like things like that, that it, it ties people's physical sort of brain back into the, 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 the conceptual thing that their mind is participating in on the Zoom. And I think that might also ground those rituals and make them more meaningful. And, and I think there's, there's an expanded permission space to do that now. That's, that's beautiful. We, we had our first online communion service uh, about a month ago, and it was it was neat. I mean, it was, we didn't do it for the full service, but as you're saying, I'm thinking, why not? You know, and it was, it was, it was deeply powerful. And there was, there was, what was super fun is we sent everybody directions for making their own special communal communion bread for that. So that their kids and them could have a little like project thing. Yeah. And, and it was pretty cool. You know, we don't want kids making wine, obviously, but you know, like, like yeah. doing, doing, doing the bread, doing the bread was kind of cool. So that, that idea of the question, yeah, you know, what are, what are the meaning making questions? Like what's, what's the meaning? What are you really looking for? And then, and then looking at, at how can it be delivered? That's what I see really being the, the primary things you're talking about. Is that, that, that would be a great way to capture it there. Yeah, I think so. How to deliver it. And then, and then also thinking about, you know, on the flip side, thinking about the church space, the physical space as a community space, what are the new roles that that might um, that serve in this world, right? Because, I mean, on, on the one hand, you, you were already seeing it in terms of just the sort of traditional disaster relief things that churches often do. But I do think, you know, and this is getting a little bit into like, I, I, you know, I, I anticipate, and I think we, we should, I would encourage everybody to anticipate that we are going to see more volatility and instability out of this. I don't think our, our systems are suddenly going to suddenly become that much more, that we're going to suddenly trust them more, that they're suddenly going to become more accountable to people, that we're, that we're going to have more agreement on, on those things all of a sudden. Um, and so I, I think between, you know, the, this period that we have coming up, which I, I think of more as, like I say, like there'll be a shift in things that, that looks more volatile. Some of this was accelerations of what was already going to happen. There's going to be more unemployment that there are going to be kind of more, I think, important, like maybe more important than they've been in a, in a century, community functions that the churches will need to provide on a longer term basis mm. um, in order to provide sort of a, like they have historically, right? Like if you think about like sort of medieval ages churches, 
a lot of that is about like, here's a, a safe place to sleep at night. Now, I'm not saying every church is going to do this, but like, how do you, how do you, where, where's a place that you can go that's safe where you can connect to resources um, to, you know, whether it's counseling, whether it's connections to other things that the churches are a, a place that I think is um, better set up to do that than a company or a government office potentially might be for folks. It's, it's so well, it's so well said. You know, and I, I just think about you know that'll that'll be one of that's one of the hard parts for us is with the COVID crisis we haven't been able to do the service stuff we usually do. But I but I know that that'll be one of the first things that we get right back into because that's that's the whole compelling why. You know yeah. that, and and uh, you know and, and I think as well just kind of the the, the coming back to kind of the counseling, the pastoral perspective, and, and what you were saying about meaning making and, you know, first things first, true north, you know, those pieces that a church can offer, that's a different kind of counseling, a different kind of perspective for someone who's struggling than, um, yeah, than just more, more sort of sectarian or secular, more secular forms there. Yeah. Now, you'd also said something interesting, and this is kind of a tie into the last one. You'd also said, you know, we also have to be aware of the pace. Like, I, I know for me, and I imagine I, I, I speak to a lot of people out there, I many days feel exhausted. Yeah. Um, I, I have many days where, frankly, I feel numb. Like, holy cow, there's, as you said, you know, there's all these people with all this information, and there's people from here saying things, people here, and, and how do I sort of put it all together? It's really hard. And I, I end up just feeling like, oh, just, just sort of, you know, fatigued a lot of the time. And, and you know, you'd said that interesting word, pace. And, and, you know, I'd love to hear you sort of just speak a little bit more on that, you know, knowing that, again, like Bible, number one command is fear not, you know. And, yeah. and you know, how do, we, how do we kind of do that, buddy? You know, like, yeah, I mean, well, just quickly on that point, I mean, on the fear piece, because yeah, that, that is really loud voice in a lot of people's ears and fear is like a terrible sort of guide, right? And a terrible counselor, although it often is, is a signal of something as we know of that we need to address. Um, so I think it's important to, to listen to fear, but, but the, the way that I hold hope as sort of the opposite of fear or even optimism is I, I do think that, um, you know, there's a difference between hoping for the best just in general, which is sometimes all we can fall back on and, and is fine to do. But if, we're tr if we have sort of moments of mental clarity and we're trying to think about what we need to be doing next, I think hoping for the best sort of outcome generally or that it'll all work out, I think is very different than hoping for the best possible outcome and thinking about that. That's where a lot of our work comes in of what, what, are, what are some possible scenarios and outcomes. Um, and and I think right now, a lot of our possible outcomes. Right that's just that's just beautiful. There's a, that hope with here, hope just in the best outcome versus hope within the possible outcomes. It's a yeah. beautiful way to phrase that. I just want to capture that again. That was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, and I I think that a lot of our possible outcomes look like various forms of things getting like more volatile than they've been for a little while. And so within that, I, I, I always try to shy away from binary. I think people tend to think like either things are going to be normal or it's going to be the apocalypse, right? And it's not going to be either of those things, right? No. It's, it's no. going to be somewhere in the middle of those two things. Um, and we have a lot of agency, not in making things not happen that are going to happen, but in trying to figure out the best version of the possible, you know? And, mm. and, and so given if we assume that there's going to be some volatility, which I think we should, um, then the, the best version of that is one where I think, first of all, and this gets back to pacing, we should pace ourselves for that, I, I think. So 
you know, my wife and I were having this conversation yesterday where she was sort of communicating that she's been thinking of this as a sprint. Like she can, she's very tough. She's one of the toughest people I've ever met and she can do a lot. And so we are both working mostly full time and doing childcare on top of that. And, you know, okay, we're, we'll take it on. We'll tough it out. Um, but you, you, there's, there's no value in burning yourself out. Right. And right. so I think we, we need to like the, the best possible outcome is one where we are not like now a liability for somebody else to take care of if we can help it by having burned ourselves out. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that's perennial advice and everybody's always saying that, but I think that's like strategic immediate advice for a period like this yeah. that we need to give ourselves a break. And if you, on some days, you know, I, I, I have the same thing. I, there's days like this week I've had similar. I've, my quarantine dreams have been weirder. Um, there's something about the eight week mark that we've sort of passing where it's like, okay, this is a lot of, of this. Um, where it's like, I only have maybe a couple productive hours in me that day. And rather than trying to pretend otherwise, um, I am going to give myself a break and go for a walk or go and be outside in nature, whatever restorative activity you have. Like that's not selfish. That's like, that, that's so important right now because we should foresee needing to be able to pull on our reserves to be helpful as we can for months and months and months, you know, not, not just for this next little period until things open back up. I, I do not think that's going to be what happens. And if it is, that's great. Then you've already, you know, then you're, you had energy and you go back to the normal life, right? That there's, you don't need to really plan that much for the, the best possible outcome. It's best to hope for that and plan for the worst, I think. And, you know, I, I always think of a, a metaphor that always occurs to me that was born out of my time living in Pennsylvania uh, was that whenever there was like a, a storm that came in the winter, that if there was this sort of this, this kind of building thing where if some, if it was snowing just where you were or in just in certain areas, there's a certain period of time where that be feels like an individual problem. Like, oh, I'm going to be late for work or I'm going to be late for class because I can't make it because of the snow. But then there would be a certain point you'd cross this threshold where suddenly it's like it shuts down the whole city. And there's a moment that happens when the snow kind of shuts everything down where it sort of is like, I, I always kind of felt like, oh, like this is now all of our problem. Yes. And Yes. Right. And it's not something that is individual, like relative to other people that I have individually, like have to carry the burden of. This is something that is, is the same for everybody now. And so th that is absolutely the case with this, right? That like the, you know, I, I just mentioned to you, I was talking to the, the head of one of the biggest advertising agencies in the world just before this call. And, you know, she's normally in a big building at the top of a big elevator. And right now she's like at home with her kid coming in with her iPad and, and a sweater trying to keep the sound working and, and just trying to get through it. Right. And, and because we're all in that same boat, I think we should also take a lot of solace in that. Right. That it's not it's not on us individually to do this, but we we do need to do it together and we need to give each other that space, which I think people generally have been doing a really good job of. Um, but we need to, we need to assume to do that for longer than we think, right? This isn't like, really I think we're used to doing that in a flood or in a, a winter storm. We're not used to doing that for like a year. Right. Um, but, but I, I think that that's like, it's going to be closer to a year than a couple months, yeah. uh, right? That, and yeah. maybe longer and when, as we adapt to things that, you know, might not spring back in, in the same way, right? I loved, I loved, I was reading some, uh, an observation by Seth Godin. It's exactly what you're saying. He said, there's a difference between a crisis and a slog. Yeah. You know, and, and like a crisis, you, you know, it's, it's similar to what your wife was saying, you know, crisis, we're going to hunker down. Let's get through this. The storm will pass over and we go back to, to whatever. And this is a slog. I mean, this is, this is a long, this is a long-term change. And, and uh, I just, I just found that extremely helpful. Well, go ahead, Dylan. Sorry. 
Well, I was just going to say, I think one of the, the other things we can take solace in is that a lot of the things that are uncertain that we're going to need to maybe spin up in response to this, this slog are some of the oldest things that humans have been doing together. That's kind of the good news. Like, I know that there's sort of a fear of like, like, oh, the future is going to be so different and there's so much like sort of things that we'll need to learn. There's some element of that, especially in like competitive businesses on the edge of different things. But a lot of the things like childcare, education, um, like sort of community resilience, those are things that we just have lost, not things that we don't know how to do, right? right. Or that right. things that we sort of like, we're like, oh, well, we had, we had economic resilience for a long time. And so we didn't need the community resilience as much. But community resilience has like 10,000 years of practice behind it. So I think that's, that's it's going to come back to us, like riding a, a bike, right? Like that's the, the oldest human bike is trying to figure out resilient communities. And I think if we think about it that way and I give ourselves our permission to think about it more that way, that we will pursue adaptations that are going to work better for us than assuming that like these kind of intermediary institutions that we've been relying on for the past like century or, or so are, are going to continue to perform their functions in the same way. Cause I think there's, there's much less evidence that that is likely. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. You know, we, we, that's right along the line. We had a question. I gave the question to the congregation a few weeks back. Like, what do you remember when you remember life is hard? And, and Dylan, I mean, not to brag, but I may have the world's best congregation, but the, uh, you know, like the stuff people came up with, it's amazing what we know with a capital K in our, yeah. in our souls. And, and like you said, it's like this muscle memory that all of a sudden's like, you know, comes, comes out. And, and it's one of my favorite parts of being a pastor is, is watching that in other people. Cause it reminds me about what I know, you know, at the yeah. same time I'm hearing, hearing what they know. And I think it makes us feel really good to remember that stuff. Right. Yeah. Like I think, I think that one of the other things out of this is we think of this as a crisis and there's a lot of good reason for that because it's very different from what's happening. But I, I, my, my feeling is that we were in a crisis before this of before the pandemic, when things were normal, where, you know, there's a lot of like economic inequality. There's a lot of people just barely getting by people feeling distant from each other. Anxiety was uh, way higher than it's been historically. And anytime we recorded it right before this pandemic. So there was a lot of people that were, I think grinding through kind of routines and loops that were not really serving them that, that, that was sort of felt survivalist. And I think returning to like, or remembering what, how we can be useful to each other as basic humans is something that this has given us permission to do. Like people, people were suffering before this. We're just all suddenly more aware of it, right? All of the conversations I have with everybody, mm -hmm. how are you? And I think we can, there, there's an opportunity whenever something like this kind of flips the chessboard on us to like, to reassess what it was that we cared about, right? And not just to follow the programming that was sort of the, the easiest to do. And I think that there's a real opportunity for actually people, like a lot of people's individual anxieties to go down. If you're, if you're the thing you're spending your time doing is trying to help other people in your community yeah, so good. versus like data mining for some company, you know, like the, 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 a lot of the jobs that people have are not feeding them spiritually. Yeah. You know? I think about, you know, as you were saying, I think Stephen Covey's great, great piece about there's what's urgent and what's important. You know, what's urgent will always win because it has that frenetic feel to it. And, and what I know as a pastor is there's, there's very few answers we get out of that place. You know, if we're frenetically kind of chasing the wind um, to, to everything where, where everything is urgent, it doesn't yeah. work so well. But when we come back down to what's important, you know, that, that centering, that grounding makes a huge difference. Yeah, like homeschooling my kids has been immensely gratifying, you know, like having, the, I'm not traveling right now. Um, it's been, and I, you know, travel is exciting and it's fun. I feel very privileged to get to do it. 
but it's been so nice to just be at home and have routines around the house, <laughs> homeschooling kids, being in the garden. Like I, you know, and I, my wife and I have both been saying too, like we, we recognize that we're actually well suited to a simpler life that we thought we might like, but have, <laughs> but like it was very theoretical because it didn't make sense, you know? Um, and so there's a lot of this out of this too, that I, I hope that we can hold on to um, even, even out of this. Yeah, that it's funny because I, I have a sermon coming up talking about that simplicity. You know, I love the idea that the spiritual life is where we learn to rediscover a second simplicity. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like it's pretty simple for your kids right now and, and you're learning that and I'm sure you guys are doing a, doing a great job. And it's, it's funny to think, right? Like, like for all of us with our kids, right? 20 years down the road, your kids are going to not be like, Dad, remember that trip you took to London? How fun that was that you got to go? No, they're going to be like, Dad, remember we used to go up back and play with caterpillars and how much fun that was? Like, that's what, that's what the memories are. Yeah, no, and, and especially because my kids, you know, they're six and four. I am confident they're going to look back on this period with a lot of fondness um, <laughs> they're, because they're, yeah, I'm not traveling. Like, they're like, yeah, remember when you taught us school? That was awesome. You know, was it was, awesome. I was mean, on the days where it wasn't, you know, where we weren't just all exhausted and then it's like, there's an iPad. <laughs> the days where it actually worked. <laughs> they weren't remember that. Um, all right, my dear friend. So, so to, to wrap this up, uh, are there, you know, two things, would you like to offer a closing thought or is there a question I didn't ask you that you wish I had? Um, no, I can't think of any, I mean, I'm, I'm, my brain is sort of already fried from the day of going to work. So I, I can't think of any questions, but I do, I guess, yeah, I just want to close, of close with, again, the sense of, of pacing and, um, that, that I think we should all anticipate that this is going to be longer than we think. And I think that, that just, I, I just want to keep repeating that. I'm repeating it as much for myself so as good. for anybody else, because I think that we also have a bias towards assuming that these kinds of things are temporary and, and certainly aspects of them are, I don't think we're going to be stuck in our homes forever by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I do think we're going to, when we emerge from this, we might find a very different country. Um, yeah. I, I think in a way that we might be surprised by and, you know, whether it's from the way that retail works in the country to the way that, to like what it takes to go to a large scale event to uh, where things are made, right? I think there's going to be a lot of global manufacturing is going to go more local. I think travel is going to become more complicated. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. just going to be all these kinds of different assumptions. And we should, I think for ourselves and, and for the, the folks that, that everybody here is has access to in terms of messaging, that I think the theme of like whatever, whatever content or themes or strategies that people feel gravitated towards around accepting change and accepting transformation, um, those themes are going to be really important for people because I, my biggest worry is the fear response out of the perception of change creates the, mo the worst outcomes, right? There's, there's yeah. nothing the virus can do to us that is worse than when, when we all get terrified and then start making bad decisions. Like my, you know, Welcome to toilet paper, right? Welcome to toilet paper. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's a very famous uh, conspiracy theorist who was like saying last week that he's ready to eat his neighbors, and he happens to be my neighbor. Like that, that's sort of like on my radar. Um, <laughs> uh, so like, there's the, the crazy. You know who you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he happens to live in my neighborhood. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of craziness out there, right? And and so finding ways to both ground ourselves and then to be like, oh, okay, even if everything changes, here's the things that won't what won't change is what my kids, my relationship to them, my responsibility to my family and my neighborhood, the the things that I believe in of who I am that aren't tied to what, what my job is. Like, I think that's going to be 
just really important tactical themes for everybody on kind of a rolling basis as different people, I think, go through the psychological kind of work of being like, oh, like things aren't going to go back to normal, right? That's going to be this rolling thing that we're going to deal with because I think things are also going to continue to change, right? This isn't like the last incident that's going to affect us, right? We're going to have potentially more fires and storms. I mean, there's, it's going to be a little bit rocky and luckily the Bible was written in a period that's very rocky. I think a lot of those themes are going to be resurgent and I would just, I, I, I would, my assumption would be to be helping people with those things for the, the next foreseeable future because that's going to be our, our situation for the, for the next while. So well said. You know, and I, I love that idea, right? Like let's pay attention to the work, not the noise. Yeah. You yeah. know, and that work is always going to be that work of healing and love and, and, and all those pieces of service out there. Well, Dylan, I could not be more honored that you took the time to speak with me and My pleasure. us. I just, I think the world of you, big guy. And, uh, just thank you. Thank you for all you shared today and just wishing you the very best and very best with teaching and work and your wonderful wife and all that stuff. So thank you. Love you too. Love you, buddy. All of us. Thank you.